This church is truly blessed. We are truly blessed with God's presence this morning. And uh, I am blessed to be a part of this church. And um, I'm blessed to work alongside Bobby and Brian. And um, so grateful to be, have such a wonderful church family. Uh, on their behalf, on our behalf, I speak for them as well as myself. We feel blessed. Uh, we feel uh, loved and appreciated. And uh, we feel like we receive more uh, from you guys and ladies than, than we actually give. But thank you so much for your love and, and your compassion, your prayer. And uh, we just continue to look to God for direction, for wisdom, for leadership, to uh, help his church to be all that we can be. You know, something interesting happened to me this week. I uh, researched and wrote this message uh, Wednesday and Thursday, and Friday morning I went over it again and made a few changes, and then again Saturday morning read over it again and made a few changes. And, and Saturday afternoon I just had some extra time, so I decided to pick up a book that my wife had given me for my birthday. I'd already read, read four chapters, the first four chapters in that book, but it had been probably a week and a half, almost two weeks before I'd read anything in it. And as I read the fifth chapter yesterday afternoon, it was like a, one of those heavenly experiences you had. Because everything that I read in that chapter was what God had given me to preach today. The book was by David Jeremiah called, Is This the End? The chapter was entitled, The Remedy of Revival. And everything, almost point by point, that God had given me was in that chapter. Why do I share that with you? Well, first of all, and most simply, it confirmed in my heart that this is what God wants His people to hear at Dawson Street Baptist Church today. And what He wants us to do. But in a larger sense, because David Jeremiah is such a well-known national speaker, that God is getting this message all over this nation. And it's something that you need to hear because you're not going to hear these kinds of things watching the news. When you watch the news, you get most, like I get, discouraged depressed, angry, hopeless, like we're all going to hell in a handbasket with this whole nation. Three weeks ago today, I started a new series called One Cry. The first Sunday we talked about the one cry the church needs to make is of repentance. We need to repent of our sin. Last Sunday, we talked about the one cry for the lost. We need to have a burden for those who are without Christ. And we need to compassionately love them and lead them to understand what Jesus has done for them. Today, the one cry we need to make as a church is, Revive us. Revive us. The Bible tells us over and over again and uses that phrase over and over again. But in Psalm 80, in verse 18 and 19, David says, Revive us and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. And nine times in Psalm 119, the psalmist cries out to God, Revive me! Revive me! Revive me! 
Now, what does that word mean? What is revival? Well, the word simply means to make alive again, to restore, to repair, to recover, to renew. David prayed in Psalm 51 in verse 12, after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, then murdered her husband, he cries out in a prayer of confession to God, pleading for God's mercy and forgiveness. And in verse 12 he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Back in Psalm chapter 80, we read verse 19, but it's repeated again in verse 3 and verse 7, the same phrase, Restore us, O God, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. He cries out in Psalm 85, verses 4 through 7, Restore us, O God, of our salvation, and cause your anger towards us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. Revival is a move of God. Wikipedia describes Christian revival like this. It's an increased spiritual interest or renewal in the life of a church congregation or society with a local, national, or global effect. You know, we have used the term revival so loosely over the years that it's come to mean an evangelistic meeting or a series of preaching meetings. Revival can occur during those special types of meetings, but true revival cannot be defined solely by such as that. Revivals are the restoration of the church itself, the people of God, to a vital and um, fervent relationship with God after a period of spiritual and moral decline. We see revival in the scriptures, in the accounts of the kingdom of, kingdoms of Israel and Judah as they went through periods of national decline and revival associated with various righteous or wicked kings. I call your attention, first of all, to King Josiah. You can find his story and read about it more in detail in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23 or 2 Chronicles chapter 34 and 35. I'm going to summarize those chapters this morning for you. Josiah became king of Judah at the tender age of eight after his father Ammon was assassinated after reigning for only two years. Josiah's grandfather Manasseh was one of the most wicked kings that Judah ever had. And he turned the nation of Israel away from the worship of God to the worship of idols. But previous to Manasseh, Josiah's great-grandfather, King Hezekiah, under whom the kingdom prospered because of his devotion to God, obviously influenced Josiah at a very young age. Young people at the age of 16, 16 years old, King Josiah, ordered the high priest to use the tax money which had been collected over the years to renovate the temple. You see, the temple of God had become in such disrepair because nobody used it for the worship of God anymore. It was all for the worship of Baal. God put it on Josiah's heart to clean out the temple, to clear the, the idolatrous worship, and he ordered the high priest to see that that got done. Well, the high priest is cleaning out the temple, and he comes to the treasure room of the temple, and he discovers a scroll there, and it's called the Law of, or the Book of the Law, which, by the way, is the first five books of the Bible you have in your hand, Genesis through Deuteronomy. 
The high priest brought the scroll to Josiah's attention. As Josiah read the law of God, he became greatly convicted about Israel's gross disobedience, and he became greatly, gravely concerned about the impending judgment that the law pronounced on the nation for their rebellion. Josiah consulted a prophetess named Huldah, who assured him that the national punishment that was foretold in the book of the law would definitely come, but it would not come in his lifetime. Because, she said to him, your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord. Josiah called an assembly of all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem and all the people were called together. Josiah stood and read from the book of the law, which had been found, and they all took a stand exclusively for God. And Josiah rid the land of all other forms of worship. The instruments and emblems of the worship of Baal and other gods were removed from the temple. And all other idolatrous temples throughout the land were destroyed. Josiah reinstituted the Passover celebration. And there was a time of great revival, great restoration in the land, great prosperity. In fact, the Bible sums it up. The biblical account of this revival is summed up like this. All of his days, that is Josiah, they did not depart from following the Lord God of their fathers. So revival is God's people returning to him with all their hearts. At which time God forgives our sin, he renews our spirits, and he restores our land. How does revival happen? Well, it typically happens during desperate times. You know, the text for this series is 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and if you want to turn there in your Bibles, you can, or you can see it on the screen, but I call your attention to verse 13. We know verse 14 by heart, backwards and forwards, but listen to verse 13. God says, in, answers to, in answer to Solomon's prayer, that God would hear his people, when they cry out to him from this temple that he had just built and was now dedicating to the Lord, God responds to Solomon and says, When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. What is God describing? He's describing desperate times. In Second Chronicles chapter 6, the chapter previous, Solomon, in his prayer, is asking God to hear when God's people are being defeated before an enemy, when God's people are experiencing drought, when God's people are experiencing famine or disease and pestilence, or their enemies are besieging them, or the foreigner is overtaking their land, or they're having to go to battle against their enemies, or when great sin comes upon the nation. God, Solomon is asking God to hear and have mercy. You see, revival generally comes in the midst of a time of great spiritual and moral depravity. In Josiah's day, for example, they were engrossed in idol worship, which involved engaging in sexual acts with cult prostitutes as part of their worship. For 60 years, almost 60 years during the reigns of his grandfather and of his father, the nation sunk into the mire of idolatry, occultism, sacrificing their babies to the god of Molech in the fire, 
military weakness, and moral confusion. The Word of God had been removed from its central place in society and had been forgotten now in a dark storeroom in the temple. Sound familiar? Fast forward several thousand years to 1857, the third Great Awakening. This nation has experienced three Great Awakenings. The first in the 1700s, early 1700s, which led to the Declaration of Independence and our nation becoming free and establishing this nation on religious liberty and the principles of the Word of God. And I defy anyone, any history writer, to say otherwise because I know the truth and we have documents to prove it. The Second Great Awakening took place in the early 1800s. But the Third Great Awakening began to happen in 1857. Our nation was in a spiritually and morally dark place, even though we had already had two Great Awakenings and the, and the golden age of religious interest had already come. But now, by 1843, the nation, like our nation today, was intent upon getting and spending we had lost interest in spiritual things. The West had opened up. Gold was discovered. People were consumed with get-rich-quick ventures. Railroad companies were booming. The slavery issue was dividing the country. One source said, Fortunes ballooned while faith diminished. However, on October 14, 1857, the nation was staggered by the worst financial panic in its history to that point. Banks closed, men were out of work, families went hungry. Enter a tall, middle-aged man, businessman, who was greatly aware of how much people needed God. His name, Jeremiah Lanfear, started a noon prayer meeting at which only six people showed up the first time, but he persisted. That noon prayer meeting with only six soon grew to thousands gathering coast to coast. People grieving over their sin and getting right with God. And it's estimated one to two million people were saved as a result of that great move of God. Revival typically happens in the midst of dark, desperate times. Do we find ourselves there now? But revival typically comes because of God's desperate people. And that's my concern. We know we live in desperate times. But my concern is, are we desperate for God to move? Are we desperate enough to pay the price to do what verse 14 of 2 Chronicles 7 says we must do? To humble ourselves. To pray to seek God's face, and to turn from our wicked, foolish ways so that God will hear from heaven, so that God will forgive our sins, so that God will, will heal our land. You see, Jeremiah Lanfear was only one soul, but he was desperate for revival. And that didn't happen overnight. In fact, his dedication to prayer and the work of prayer for revival came only after a struggle in his own heart. Some of you this morning are struggling spiritually struggling. You feel the pull of the world against you. You're trying to live the faithful Christian life, 
but you're constantly tugged by the cares of this world. That's why the Bible says we are to run this race with endurance, and we're to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily enslaves us. That is, there are some things in your life that are sin that you need to get rid of. You need to let go of. You need to repent of. But there are some things that are, that are just like weight. You're involved in too many things. And it's pulling you down and it's dragging you down and it's keeping you away from God. It's not necessarily sin, but it becomes sin when it keeps you away from total devotion to the one who totally devoted his life for you and for me. Let us lay aside that. Jeremiah Lanfear had that struggle, but he came to the point where he totally surrendered himself to God, and he began praying, and God began drawing people, and God did a mighty work across the land, the third great awakening, in fact, the last great awakening this nation has ever known. We need more like him today. You can be one. I can be one. We need people like you and like me who will take 2 Chronicles 7 and take it very seriously. As a result of Solomon's prayer, verse 12 the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer. You know, if God's people will pray like this, if we'll follow God's prescription, God says, I will hear. He said, I have chosen this place, this temple for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land and send pestilence among my people, if my people. There's a big word. What's the first word of verse 14? There's the struggle. If. It's not a matter of will God. It's not in God's court. Where's the ball? It's in our court. If my people, who are called by my name, shall humble themselves. God says he deals with the humble and the contrite heart. I want to share with you this passage in Isaiah 57. Verse 15, for thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Will we humble ourselves before God? That requires us setting aside our schedules that we're too proud to let go of. Will we humble ourselves will, to pray? Will we clear our schedules? Will we set aside everything so that we can pray and so that we can seek God's face? And so God can begin to pinpoint the things in our lives that don't belong, that we can turn from those things. And as we begin to do that, God says, then I will, verse 14, hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. Listen, this nation's not going to be turned around in the voting booth. I want to challenge you. You better vote. Vote, vote, vote. And let me tell you what. Vote by principle. Even, you can't, even if you can't vote for the person, you need to vote by conviction of the principle of the Word of God. But vote. But listen, this nation's not going to be turned around in the voting booth. This nation's going to be turned around in the prayer closet. And we want to fuss and fight about politics, but it doesn't matter who's in the White House, who's in the Oval Office. What matters is who's 
in their prayer closet. What if God's people are turning back to God, seeking his face for revival? If God can use one man like Jeremiah Lanfear, he can use you and he can use me. What happens in revival when God begins to do a mighty work? Oh, I challenge you, it is so great, it is so enjoyable as I research for this uh, message this week. Wonderful to read the stories of what God has done throughout the world in the history of his revivals. And to see many of the common denominators, and I want to share with you very quickly, like a, almost like a rifle, just an automatic rifle. It's coming at you quickly. What are some common denominators that happen when revival comes? How will you know? Well, there will be a sincere, genuine brokenness over personal sin. You see, we get mad over things like abortion or homosexual marriage or drug addiction or you name it. But I want us, God wants us to be broken over personal sin. What is your sin? that's breaking God's heart. There's a genuine brokenness over personal sin. There's a confession, and then there's a turning away. That's one of the common denominators. Another is a love for God consumes us. We long to linger in His presence. We're not in a rush to get out of church. We're not in a rush to get out of our quiet time. We have a, thirdly, a deep love for the Word of God. And have a desire to obey it with all of our hearts. Even though we do fail from time to time, we have a deep love for His Word. It's amazing how small of a percentage of people who call themselves Christians rarely pick up this book. And if they pick it up, they read one verse, and then they read a lengthy devotion from one verse. Listen, why would we rather read the writings of men instead of the writings of God? Should we not be immersing ourselves in the holy word of God? When revival comes, that's what happens. We get a love for the word of God. We have a earthly pleasures and treasures lose their appeal. We'll see this in some of the stories I'll share with you in just a moment. Earthly pleasures and treasures lose their appeal. There is a desire to share Christ and to use your platform, to use the place where God has put you, to use your performance, your talent for Him. Woodlawn High School in Birmingham, Alabama was engaged in the desegregation days of the early 70s. In the midst of cross burnings and riots erupting in the city, Tandy Geralds, the Woodlawn Colonel's football coach, struggled to ease the racial tensions between his players. It's only when he allowed an outsider named Hank to speak to his team that the real change began. Hank had been radically affected by the message of hope and love that he uh, encountered during a Billy Graham crusade that took place during the Jesus movement. Hank told the players a better way was possible through following Jesus. More than 40 players, nearly the entire team, both black and white, gave their lives over to Jesus Christ. And it had a spiritual and profound impact upon the coach and upon the school and upon the community. That, according to the movie Woodlawn, is still felt today. In the midst of all this was Woodlawn's star running back, who gave his life to Christ at that time, Tony Nathan. 
Tony Nathan went on to star at Mr. Lewis Alabama Crimson Tide. You may remember Tony Nathan playing for Alabama Crimson Tide. He went on to play professional football in the NFL with the Miami Dolphins. You see, God moved. And God used a man's platform and his place to exalt Christ. One young man named Hank, who had been stirred by God, walked with a cane, and was able just to share the love of Jesus. Another common denominator of revival is compassion, not contempt for all people. This afternoon at 5 o'clock, you're going to have an opportunity to exercise compassion. There are going to be people here that you don't know. There are going to be people here by the hundreds, Lord willing, if history proves correct today. We've had almost a thousand people here before. It's going to be kind of like ants running around this campus. And there's going to be some bumping into each other. Hopefully not physically. But we need, we God has given us an opportunity to express to our community in a very real and tangible way love, compassion. Even if it's not met with gratitude and appreciation, we still, as Jesus would do in the face of that, would express love and compassion that they might see in a physical way the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, one of the evidences of revival is there's a compassion for people. Jesus was moved with compassion as he saw the sheep scattered without a shepherd. Another result a result of revival. Revival is not an evangelistic meeting. Revival will produce evangelism. Sinners will be converted. In this third great awakening I've been talking about that which started with Jeremiah Lanfear's prayer meeting, it rolled into 1859 and 1860 and even propelled into the Civil War. It is reported that over 100,000 Confederate troops gave their lives to Christ and close to 200,000 Union troops gave their lives to Christ during this great move of God, and that by war's end, one-third of all the Confederate officers and soldiers were saved. When the revival was at its peak, it's estimated that 50,000 people a day were being saved, and that a total of one million people were saved, which accounts for one-thirtieth of the United States population at that time, and it all happened in one year. Because one man got a burden and decided to do something about it. I hope and pray that I'll be that one man and that you will join me. Another common denominator is society changes. This revival spilled over into Europe. Even years later, in 1904, the Welsh revival. By the way, that began to start as one man, Evan Roberts, an uneducated coal miner and blacksmith, called God's people to pray. It was described as a mighty invasion of the Spirit in 1904 in Wales. 
God's kingdom radically manifested on earth. Here's some of the changes that took place. We want to see society change. It's going to change when God's people get right with God. It is a natural byproduct. It's not the other way around. Society won't change unless God's people change. But society will change when God's people change. Here are some of the changes in the Welsh Revival. The earnings of workmen, instead of being squandered on drink and vice, were now bringing great joy to their families because they were able to meet their financial obligations. Outstanding debts were being paid by thousands of young converts. Restitution was the order of the day. The gambling and alcohol business, the casinos would be shut down. Alcohol business, the gambling business, lost their trade. And the theaters closed down from a lack of patronage. Football during this time was forgotten by both players and fans. You've got to be kidding. That wasn't South Georgia. (laughs) The people just had new lives and new interests. Football, theater, and gambling and drinking just didn't bring what God could bring. Hmm. Political meetings were canceled or abandoned. Praise God. (laughs) They seemed completely irrelevant since nobody was interested. The political leaders from Parliament in London abandoned themselves to the revival meetings. Judges were presented with white gloves because there were no cases to try. The illegitimate birth rate was reduced by 44%. Mules in the mines had to be retrained because the coal miners no longer used profanity when giving them orders. (laughs) The man-made denominational barriers completely collapsed as believers and pastors worshipped their majestic Lord together. You see, society will change when revival truly comes. It doesn't happen the other way around. Revival is when God's people turn back to God and God does a fresh work in their lives. And results take place in the community and around. I've been telling you for all these years, God's been saying it since the beginning of time. If, what's the next two words? My people. Are we God's people? We are. My question has been, will God do it again? The third great awakening, which I've described in was the last great national revival in America. I would say that after 159 years, we're long overdue. There have been local pockets of revival, like the Jesus movement. You were alive then, most of you. Some of you weren't. I was. Those, the 60s and the early 70s were tumultuous years. John F. Kennedy was shot. The Cold War pitted us against the USSR. Racial conflict raged in the South. Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis, then Robert Kennedy. Riots erupted in the streets. The Vietnam War ripped the fabric of this nation apart. Students took over university campuses. Bombs went off. Hallucinogenic drugs were popularized. Transcendental meditation and Eastern mysticism 
all we're swallowing up an entire generation of our young people. Watergate sent our politics into chaos. In the midst of this, a Christian couple in California decided to start an evangelistic coffee house. And because of its initial success, many other such coffee houses popped up along the West Coast, resulting in hundreds of people being saved and the winds of revival beginning to blow. The Jesus movement was now born. The Jesus, Jesus movement was mainly a movement among young people. But it spread, it started in California, but it spread throughout North America, Europe, Central America. Members of the Jesus movement were called Jesus people or Jesus freaks because many of those who were saved were hippies. Some of you haven't given up on that yet. Some of you couldn't help but give up on it because it all turned loose. That is your hair. <laughs> you know, although the Jesus movement lasted no more than a decade, its influence on Christian culture can still be seen. Thousands of converts moved into leadership positions in churches and parachurch organizations. From the Jesus movement, we got many of the existing parachurch organizations like Campus Crusade for Christ and others. It's been noted that yesterday's Jesus people are today's church leaders. Will God do it again? I'll share one, one more story with you. Wayne Atchison, who's the historian at the Billy Graham Museum, wrote of two recent stirrings of revival that took place in 20. What year we're living in? 16. He attended both of these, and he wrote of both of these. One of them took place in Mingo County, West Virginia. It spread into Delberton, Williamson, and Logan County, and is still going on. But the one I want to tell you about happened this summer in Burlington, North Carolina. You see some pictures on the screen of some of what God was doing at that tent. Wayne Atchison describes it like this. Heaven came down in Burlington, North Carolina as a mighty movement of God fell on New Hope Baptist Church summer revival that extended to an incredible 12 weeks. People across America and around the world were touched by this historic outpouring of God's anointing power. It started with only three or 400 in the first week, grew to 700, and by the fourth week, there were 1,000 people crammed into a 600-seat sanctuary. It was obvious something had to be done, so they rented a tent that would hold 2,500 chairs. They set it up next to a borrowed lot next to a Toyota dealership on Interstate 40. Here's the key. Atchison reports that every morning at 1030 of the Monday through Friday night services, 50 to 60 pastors and prayer warriors would gather at the tent to pray. One pastor would show up an hour early at every service, and he and other pastors would go behind the platform and get under the crawl space and pray for the meeting that night and throughout the service. And pastors would pray in shifts throughout the service. For the next five weeks, 2,500 to 3,000 people gathered every night. One youth service drew 5,100 students. That meant that 2,500 people, the other 2,500 that came, had to sit outside the tent. Huge fans were brought in, placed around the tent to help relieve the warm weather. 
Leonard Ravenhill said one of England's most, Leonard Ravenhill is one of England's most uh, renowned evangelists. He said, you never have to advertise a fire. Everyone comes running when there's a fire. People would show up at 5 o'clock for services that started at 7. People drove from Tennessee. Yeah, people even from Tennessee wanted to be revived, Brian. Praise God. Oh, your dad's here too. Somewhere. People from Tennessee, Pennsylvania, Georgia, South Carolina, Kentucky, Texas, Alabama, Florida, Montana, Kansas, Ohio, Indiana, Hawaii were drawn to this revival. Many people were saved watching the service live streamed on Facebook. People tuned in from Africa, Hong Kong, Canada, Mexico, Chile, the Philippines, Venezuela, and United Kingdom, and other countries. And they would be praying and begging God, send something like that to our country. The last two weeks of the Burlington Revival saw an overflow crowd of well more than 6,000 people. And after 12 weeks, 1,249 people had been saved. God healed people with cancer. Marriages were put back together. People were delivered from all sorts of addictions. Pastors received fresh new vision and renewed fire to preach the power of the gospel. One such example was a businessman who was asked to edit and produce a video for the revival. As he was going over that video over and over again in the editing process, the Holy Spirit convicted him of his sin, and he went forward one night and gave his life to Christ. That was early in the revival. Later in the revival, he came forward again and said God had called him to preach. And just this past August, he started his first revival meetings as an evangelist. It was a special blessing during this revival when a Muslim man came to the revival and invited Jesus Christ into his life was later baptized in his church. You know, these are things you won't hear when you watch the news. Because this is good news. Media just likes to report the bad news. But you need to hear these things because the world and the devil wants us to think that God is dead. And he's disinterested in what's happening in this nation and that he's given up on us. Listen, in my research for this message, I read conditions of our nation that were far more deplorable then than they are now. And if God did it then, God will do it again. I believe the answer to the question, will God do it again? The answer to that question is yes, God will do it again. God's not dead. His promise is still true. The Bible says, let every promise of God be yes. The promise is 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if. And that's the real question. It's not, will God do it again? It's, do we really want Him to? How desperate are we for revival in our hearts and in our homes and in our churches and in our land? Will we ask Him? to revive us again. David prayed in Psalm 85, 6, Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Will you and I be willing to pay the price in prayer and repentance for revival to occur? 
Here's what God says. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Even gather the children and the nursery babies. Let the bridegroom go out of his chamber. And the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord. Do not give your heritage to reproach, that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer. And say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of my people. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The greatest need of America is not a new president. The greatest need of America is an old-fashioned, heaven-born, God-sent revival. As Vance Havner said, that throughout the history of the church, when clouds have hung the lowest, when sin has seemed the blackest and faith has seemed the weakest, there have always been a faithful few who have not sold out to the devil nor bowed the knee to Baal, who have feared the Lord and thought upon his name and have not forsaken the assembling of themselves together. These have besought the Lord to revive his work in the midst of the years and in the midst of the fears and in the midst of the tears and in wrath to remember mercy. God has always answered such supplications, filling each heart with his love, rekindling each soul with fire from above. 
I believe with all my heart that if God's people will do what God says, God will provide us again. You see, I'm sure, as my wife pointed out this morning as we were talking about this, that the people of those days, before the revival of 1857, before the Second Great Awakening, that people thought much like you're thinking, it can't go on much longer. Jesus is going to come back. I pray he does. But you know what? It could be today, or it could be 100 years from today. I see the signs being put together. But I'm sure that people back then saw the same sign, many of the same signs coming together. Some not, some more coming together that were not together then. But listen, what I want you to hear from me and from God today is there is hope for America. But it's hope found only in Jesus. This, is this the end? I don't know. I hope it's not the end for America. But if it's, if it's not going to be the end for America, it's going to be because God's people took God's word seriously and decided to seek him for America. My friends, let me ask you a question. Are you ready to throw in the towel? You ready to give up on this nation? And what are you willing to do? Bobby, pull up that last slide. This is going to give you an opportunity. Well, there it is at the bottom. A week from tomorrow night, I'm calling a sacred assembly. You say, well, I've got plans. Okay. If they could be canceled, would you cancel them? You cancel plans for other things. Did you cancel plans for this? We call God's people together. We're going to gather here next Monday night. Yes, that's the day before the election. And we're going to seek God for revival. We're going to pray. We're going to humble ourselves. We're going to seek God's face. We're going to confess and turn from our wicked ways. We're going to do that corporately next Monday night. But you know, you don't have to wait till next Monday night. You can start right here, right now, this morning, in your own heart. With every head bowed, every eye closed. Thank you for your time. This is so serious. Would you be praying that right now? God.